So um, we are continuing our, our uh, summer series, um, summer or not, uh, we're continuing our summer series of uh, lessons from the life of David that I'm calling Summer Blockbusters, and today's is about worship. When I was uh, first introduced to this church last year, I, I was going through the process of calling the references, the, the church lists references, I list references, and we each call and check up on each other. And I was talking to this church's references, and one of the people I talked to was David Beckett. He is the, the conference, uh, the, the district superintendent of the Alaska Methodist Conference. And so I was talking to him, and he, he said something about this church that has stuck with me to this day. He said, he said, this church has exuberant worship. And I thought to myself, exuberant worship? Exuberant worship, what a great thing to be able to say about a church. I don't think I've ever been in a church where at least I would have said that the worship was exuberant, or at least not on a regular basis, maybe once in a blue moon. But I, I, I thought, what a great thing. I've actually been afraid to look up exactly what the word exuberant means. Um, I, I know it's good. I know it's something to do with like enthusiastic or something like that, but I'm actually afraid to find out what it means because I just love that idea of exuberant worship. And see, the, the tradition I come from, the Presbyterian Church, is, is from a different kind of way of looking at worship. We're all about what is called decency and order. Decently in order. That's, that's our, our official motto. The Presbyterian Church's official motto is the Reformed Church always being reformed according to the Word of God. That's our official motto. But our unofficial motto is all things should be done decently and in order. And that comes from from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, where apparently the church in Corinth was, was very, very exuberant in its worship. And so Paul had written them a letter to say, you know, yes, you can do this. You know, you should do this. You should do this. You can go ahead and have this. You can, you can do this other thing. But he says, all things should be done decently in order. It's interesting. He doesn't say, don't do that. Don't do that. He says, do it in moderation. Do it with a little bit of decency and order. But the Presbyterians have seized on that, and, and the reason for it is our history. Uh, the Presbyterian Church is part of what's called the Reformed Church or, or the Reformed Family of Churches. It stands in the Reformed tradition, which means we go back all the way to the, the beginnings of the Protestant Reformation. And one of the things that the Protestant Reformers said is they looked at the medieval church and they said, there's all kinds of stuff going on in the church that is not in the Bible. We just can't find any trace of some, some of these rituals that people are doing here. We just don't see any sign of it in the Bible. And they said, so we're not going to do it because we can't find it in the Bible. It was a good, simple rule of thumb. They just said, if we can't find it in the Bible, they're not going to do it. So it was their way of, of dealing with the question of, of decency and order. Uh, how, what is appropriate in worship? And that's, that's the question I would like to, to talk about today because, because the reality is a lot of people... Um, find worship to be less than exuberant, at least for them. Maybe not in this church because you have exuberant worship here, um, or you didn't until the Presbyterian showed up. But, but um, uh, you know, maybe, maybe he'll grow in his new, in his new role. But, but the church here is exuberant, but not every church is. And, and even if it is, it may not be for you. Maybe you're the one person you're looking at and saying, how can they be having fun? I'm, I'm, I'm not having any fun at all today. I don't know. But but this is a big question, and I, I am personally very grateful to be in a church that is kind of on the, the far side of the worship war, but there's a lot of people who still define their churches by whether there's an organ or guitars, whether there's speaking in tongues or handling of snakes. There's a lot of questions about what goes on in worship, and how do you know what's right? 
What is, how do we, how do we as Christians know what is appropriate in worship? Is there, is there some kind of a rule that we can follow, like the reformers did 500 years ago when they said, our rule is, if it's not in the Bible, we're not going to do it. Is there a rule that we can apply today? Should we apply that rule? Um, what is the way we know to have good worship? How do we have worship that is not only pleasing to us, but pleasing to God? How can we have worship that is good worship? That's the question we're wrestling with. And the reason is because, as we see in today's reading, whenever you go before God, you are flirting with disaster, right? God, uh, we, we want worship to be electrifying. We just don't want to get shocked to death by it. We, we would love to have electrifying worship, but not that much. We have, we have a question, how much is enough? How much is too much? Where are the lines to be drawn? And in our lesson today, we see an answer to the question, or we see some guidance. I don't think, I actually don't think we see a straightforward answer. Um, and that's part of what I'll talk about. What's going on in our lesson? Um, uh, as, I, as I've said, as we've been going through this, we've kind of been jumping around because there is so much about David. Not jumping around, but jumping over a lot of stuff. Last week, we left off where David was for the first time beginning to act like a king. David was actually looking out for people other than number one. And that was a good thing because in God's providence, Israel was about to need a king. Unbeknownst to David, in another battle going on in another part of the country, Saul was about to die in a battle. He'd been warned that he would die, and he went into the battle anyway. So, so Saul is about to die, and so is his family. Israel is about to be without any kind of king or any obvious heir. So God has prepared the situation so that, so that David is now ready to become king over Israel. So what happened in the, that's, that kind of brings us to the end of 1 Samuel. In the first couple of chapters of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, what happens is, is the southern part of Israel says, look, this has never been a contest. David should always have been king. Saul should have just quit or abdicated or something. So they very quickly make David king. The northern parts of Israel, they weren't as easily convinced, but it took a couple of chapters of negotiating and diplomacy, but ultimately the rest of Israel decides, okay, sure, David should be the new king. So David is now king, and in chapter 5, he conquers the city of Jerusalem. There's a, up until that point, uh, Jerusalem had been uh, the, the part of the land of the Jebusites, and David conquers it, and he very modestly names it the city of David. And he says... He says, I want this city to be the capital of the new kingdom that I'm going to be king of. And I'm going to relocate the government there, and I'm going to relocate the worship of the, of the people of God from Shiloh, where it's been, up in the northern part of Israel, down to, to uh, Jerusalem in the southern part. And he's thinking, well, what will convince them to go along with my plan? And he says, I know what I'll do. I'll move the ark there. Now, here's the thing. The ark was supposed to be up in Shiloh, but what happened is there was a battle um, uh, a full book ago, the very beginning of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 4. You can find there's some notes in the, in the handout that will help you navigate all this if you're interested. But well, there was a battle, and the ark was captured. What had happened is God said, don't go, and they said, we have a secret way of getting God to fight on our side. We're just going to bring, we're going to commit God and he's going to have to. So they brought the, the ark of God with them, thinking, well, now God's going to have to fight for us. And God went limp on them, and the ark got captured. And so a whole bunch of Israelites died. They lost this battle, 
and they lost the Ark of the Covenant. Now, what happened then is the Philistines didn't want it for very long. They held on to it for a couple of months, but it was like it was radioactive or something. People died all around it, and they said, we want to be rid of this thing. So they put it on a cart, and they said, all right, we'll just let God tell the oxen what to do, okay, because we want it out of our country. So off it goes. It, the oxen go straight into Israel, and the, there's much rejoicing on both sides because the Philistines are happy to be rid of it, and the Israelites are happy to have it back. So it sits down on this border border area between Philistine, the, the land of the Philistines and Israel. And it's been sitting there for 70 years. It never got moved back up to Shiloh. So the ark is where it's always been. And David says, why not move it to Jerusalem? That would be a great way to relocate all the civic life and religious life of Israel to this new town I've captured. So that's what David is doing here. And we read, it says, David again gathered all the chosen men, and they set out and went from Ballet Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God. So they're going to bring the Ark of God into, into Jerusalem. And they put it on a cart, and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, and, um, and everything was going great. They're singing and dancing, and they're using their lyres and their castanets and so forth. And then the oxen slips when they're crossing the threshing floor of Nacon. And when the oxen slips, the cart jiggles, and the, car, the, the Ark of the Covenant looks like it's going to tip over, and Uzzah reaches out to steady it. And Uzzah is struck dead. God strikes Uzzah dead. And if you've ever planned a worship service, this should, this should be a sobering experience for you because one minute you've got castanets and cymbals, the next minute people are dro- dropping over dead. You don't want that to happen in your Sunday service. So this is an important, an important scripture for those of us who plan worship. What did Uzzah do wrong? What did he do wrong? Well, actually, there's an answer. If you go back to Numbers 4, Uzzah shouldn't have touched the ark. It says specifically in Numbers 4, don't touch the ark. So Uzzah does touch the ark or reaches toward it, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against him. God struck him there because he reached out his hand to the ark. So the question that I think we can all ask at this point is, why is God so touchy? What's the big deal? Uzzah was just trying to help. And the answer is that God is not touchy. God has God has overlooked all kinds of problems up till now. It also says in Numbers 4 that the, that the, um, uh, the Ark of the Covenant shouldn't be carried on a cart. It should be carried on people's shoulders. They went ahead and did that. God didn't strike anybody dead for that. But God drew the line here for some reason. God, uh, God drew the line here somewhere between putting it on a cart and reaching out and touching it. And the text doesn't tell us why. The text doesn't give us what we're looking for. We're looking for that, that thin, bright line that will explain where is the boundary? How far can I go? How far can I push God before he pushes back? And the text doesn't tell us where that line is. And so David is confused. David says, it says David was angry because of the Lord and David was afraid of the Lord. He says, how can the ark of the Lord come into my care? So David was unwilling to take the ark of the Lord into his care in the city of David. David abandons this project. He says, that's it. I've got other tools at my disposal. I'm going to focus on you know, being a king for a while or let the religion sort itself out. David says, I'm done with this project. And then God woos David back. 
God blesses this man, Obed-Edom. The, the, he's like the neighbor who must have been delighted to find that he got to house this ark um, uh, when it's killing people. So, um, so it stays there for three months, and somehow he's blessed. It doesn't say how he's blessed, but he's blessed in a very visible way. Maybe he got double the amount of crops of anybody else, or his camels multiplied, or his children obeyed and did their chores, or whatever it was. Something happened in Obed's household that everybody could look at and say, wow, God is really blessing Obed-Edom. And so David hears about this and he says, okay, all right, I'm going to try it again. And this time he tells the, the Levites, if you go to First um, Chronicles, there's another telling of this story. And there, there's a lot of the priestly details. I didn't want to go into those. But it says they, they did things differently. The Levites read their numbers, the book of numbers, and they figured out what the procedure was supposed to be. And they do it right. And so they're singing and dancing, and uh, they go six steps, and then David throws a party, everybody gets a, a feast, um, and then they go on and they bring it the rest of the way in. And that's, that's kind of the, how the story continues. But what we were looking for is a rule, and there is no rule here. We know that David has disobeyed God's rule himself. He's, he's allowed this procedure to go on on the cart. David knows from his own history there is a story in the in the in the scriptures where David was on the lamb from Saul back in the in 1 Samuel and and he was hungry and so he went to the priest and he said have you got any food the priest said there's nothing to eat except the special bread that's for the priests and David persuaded him to let him eat it God didn't strike him dead so David knows that God gives grace that God is about mercy and yet he's seeing that sometimes you can push God too far and we would look, just like David, where is that boundary? And we don't find it. We don't find the boundary. And I think the reason for that is worship, good worship, worship that pleases God is not about rules. It's about a relationship. The, the worship that pleases God is not about checking off items on a list of, you know, the ritual contains these four parts. Worship that pleases God is worship that is centered on God. God's might, God's power, God's authority, but also God's grace and love. Amen. Amen. Thank you. So, so as we look at Scripture, it's interesting as you go through the Bible, how many rules are there that tell us how to worship? One of the reasons Protestants have argued about, about whether the Bible is a good source of rules for worship is that there just aren't many rules in the Bible. There's a few rules. There's mostly don'ts. There's Bible. There's rules in the Bible that say don't sacrifice to idols, um, don't have human sacrifice. There's some things that God says don't do this. Okay, don't have other gods before me. God has laid down some rules, but they're mostly uh, uh, don'ts. There, there are a handful of don'ts that say don't do this and don't do that. But there aren't many positive rules. Now, in, in the case of temple worship, there's a lot of temple worship rules that say here's how you prepare the grain offering. You do this. You do that specific rules about the grain offering. And and the problem with that is, for, for believers today, is that we don't have a temple and we don't do sacrifices. Our understanding of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament is that Jesus fulfilled all that law, that Jesus was himself the perfect and final sacrifice. So we're not offering grain offerings or, or sacrificing animals. We're not doing all those. So all those particular rules that say, here's how you do it, you cut here and slice there, those don't apply to us. They're, they're, they're academic. Christians, since the very beginning of the church, 
have modeled their worship not after the temple worship that was centered in Jerusalem, but synagogue worship. Jesus himself preached in synagogues. So the Christians have said, that's how we'll do our worship. And the problem with that is there's not a lot of rules that tell us how to do it. There's very few rules in the Bible that tell us how to have worship that pleases God. And I think the reason for that is that God wants the relationship. God wants us to to be centered on Him, and He, in turn, will center on us. Religion that pleases God is contextual. God doesn't want to have a bunch of rules because context changes. What works in one place in one time won't work in another place. Now, my guess, this is not in the Bible, but I will tell you why I think Uzzah was struck down. I think God is willing to look hard and mean here because there's something important at stake. David is moving the center of Israel's religion to Jerusalem. And God knows how that's going to turn out over the next couple of centuries. What's going to happen is that they're going to turn from God. There is going to be human sacrifice. There is going to be worship of idols. There is going to be things that the Bible describes as detestable religion. God is not going to be pleased with religion in a couple of centuries. And God is willing to look hard today in order to to have a good start to the religion. That if people realize that there's lines they can't cross, then they won't cross them, or at least they won't cross them right away. And that will give Israel something to look back on later and say, that's the golden age. We should do it like that. I think God is willing to do that because he can see what's going to happen in the future. That's worth what you paid for it. That's my two cents. That's what I think is going on here. Ultimately, we don't know. God wants the religion to be contextual. God wants it to be relational. God wants it to be centered on him and not on a list of rules. So, what's our application? Well, the first application is is if you come in here and you immediately start thinking about the rules for worship, then you're missing the point. The thing to think about here is God. We have rules. We have we have things we do. We have ritual, right? We have we have people come forward and bring the light because we want to focus ourselves on God. We have ritual in service of the relationship. So the first application is to be focused on God and not on the ritual. The second thing is to not make our preferences binding, okay? We all know that's how this goes, right? It says somewhere in the Bible that I have a reserved seat, okay? And if it doesn't say it about me, it says it about some people, and you know who you are, okay? And you know that it's a sin for the newcomer, the visitor, to come in and sit in your spot. And so I would just encourage you to double-check the Bible, because I actually don't think it says that. Um, I would be very cautious about making my preferences um, into a binding rule. One of the things about being a pastor in a Presbyterian church, it says in black and white, the pastor picks the music. Okay, And one of the things, because I don't know anything about music, I work with a music director, and one of the things is I'll be in the conversation with a music director, and I'll say, oh, I hate that song. And they'll say, we won't do it then. And I'll say, oh, no, don't don't do that to please me, because I know there's people who really like that song. So uh, my preferences are not the law. My preferences don't bind anybody. And I would hate for the church to start thinking of my preferences as binding. And if you think... Where you sit is a binding principle that's part of the law of God. You should rethink that and let other people sit there from time to time. So, uh, focus on the relationship 
and don't make your preferences binding. And I think there's one more, and this may be the hardest of all for for uh, people in the main line especially, just to look around. David looked around. David gave up. David said, that's it. I'm done with this Ark of God thing. He went back home to Jerusalem, and that was it for him. But God won him back by blessing Abed-Edom. And I think that we in the Presbyterian Church, in the Methodist Church, but the mainline church, I think the established church, people who've got a long history, we've spent centuries thinking about how to do worship well, I think we can be blinded by our own propaganda. And we start saying there's only one way to have worship. There's only one way that will please God. And I think one of the things we can do is we can look at other churches um, and say, is God blessing that? And if God is blessing it, then we should say, okay, then we can do that too. We don't have to, but we can. And I think the reverse is true. If we have exuberant worship here, if we are being blessed in our worship here, then I think that's something that other people should be aware of. We should not like hide that, and I don't think anybody does. But it's something, when, when God is blessing what you're doing, I think we're free to let people know that. And if God is blessing what the church is doing down the street, then I think we have the, the freedom to do that as well. We have to be careful about theology. I, I pointed at one street, not another street. Um, and I'll, I, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. I, I'm not going down that rabbit trail. Okay, uh, where am I going? All right. So, um, uh, so we are, we are, we are. Um, uh, boy. So, don't make our rules for other people to obey. Don't make our rules into the law, and 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 um, uh, to. Um, where did I go? Look around. We can look around like David did. Look, we can look around and see who did, who God is blessing. Okay, we can do there. He's back on track now. All right, we can look around and. To be honest, I think that may be the most Reformed thing we can do because what is our official slogan as the Reformed Church? It is the Reformed Church always being Reformed according to the Word of God. If what we see God blessing is in accordance with the Word of God, then we can adopt it too. We can look at it and say God is blessing that. Jesus gave us a nice simple summary for this. Jesus was criticized all the time for violating the the religious ritual of his day. People said, Jesus... You're doing it wrong. You're healing on the Sabbath. Your disciples are plucking grain on the Sabbath. You don't have a clue how to do worship well, Jesus. And Jesus told them, the Sabbath was made for humankind, not humankind's for the Sabbath. He said that God gives us worship. God gives us ritual. God gives us religion as a gift for us. God doesn't need our worship. God will do fine without it. But God delights in it because he knows it's good for us. He gives us the opportunity to come here on weekends to be equipped and energized for the week we're going to have out in the world. He wants us to be like Jesus in the world, and he knows the best way for that to happen is for us to come into his presence each week. The Sabbath is for us, not us for the Sabbath. My prayer is as we keep that in mind, Our worship will always be exuberant. Thanks be to God.